The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Join with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come here together to read your word and to seek understanding therein, we pray that you would give us help. We pray that you would open our eyes, see the truth of the text that is in front of us, and that by seeing it, we may receive a tremendous amount of comfort. We pray for conviction where conviction is needed. We pray that you would confront us with your word. We pray that you would speak through me. We pray that you would open the ears of all who might hear, that conviction would fall on us where we are attempting to hide, attempting to deceive, attempting to obscure the meaning of your word so that it doesn't apply to us. We pray that you would break through and apply. We pray that you would give instruction and help to all who need it, that this text would be incredibly comforting once it is understood, that we might, in seeing this and understanding it, we might receive a newfound appreciation for Christ, for what you've done through him to and for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There are times as as a parent, I'm sure any parent in here can relate, where you look at your child and you know what they're thinking. Or sitting there at the dinner table or wherever, and you can read them like a book. And there are several reasons why that would be the case. One is you've known them their entire life. There's never been a day on this earth that you haven't known them, talked to them, related with them, whatever, and you you know them better than they know themselves to some degree. But another reason why you understand what they're thinking is that you have been there and you've done that. So no matter what they come across, no matter what they do, no matter what situation comes up in their life, you think, boy, I have been there, I've done that, and I've got the t-shirt to prove it, right? So you know exactly what's happening. And it's hard for children, I think, sometimes to realize that their parents were children too. And I've told you a number of times that my kids like to hear stories of when I was a kid and I got in trouble because it gives them a tremendous amount of comfort knowing that I used to get in trouble too. But it's hard for them to realize that that their parents were also young ones and that they understand, therefore, what it is like to live in their shoes better than they think they do. This morning, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and following, and we're going to focus on verse 8. And 
As we do, we're looking at in this series, uh, this brief Christmas series, before we go into the book of Hebrews, we're seeing the connection between the manger and the cross. The, the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas time does not make sense if it is not connected directly to the story of the resurrection that comes at Easter. The two fit together. And so we're taking it upon ourselves to look over the next several years during this Christmas season at why Jesus came and what the Bible actually has to tell us about why Jesus came. And it comes from myriad places in Scripture, and it's not just in the Gospels. It's here in the book of Hebrews, a little hint as to why Jesus came. And as we look in on, zoom in on verse 8, we're going to find exactly that. And, and if you look at verse 8, there are some issues that are present right there on the surface of the passage. We read a text like this, and it says something like, Jesus was learning. And we think to ourselves, learning, although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. It creates in us this sort of visceral reaction, doesn't it? This sort of, we almost can't explain why that passage rubs us the wrong way. He's the Son of God. Isn't He omniscient? Isn't He omnipotent? Doesn't He... At some points in the Gospel, He looks at His disciples and He knows what they're thinking. Or He looks at other people and He knows what's in their heart. And He, explain, he answers them as if He's reading their thoughts. And yet here in this verse, it says He learned obedience through what He suffered. The idea that the Son of God, who is supposed to be omniscient, would learn is troubling, I think. And then when you get to verse 9, it says, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. And it, it seems to suggest in that verse that He was not perfect, but then He became perfect? What does that mean? That He being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So it's Troubling on that in that sense. But then it's also troubling because it says that he didn't just learn, like he didn't just learn math or learn to read. He did that too. But it says he learned obedience. Here again, this seems like he's, it's saying that he wasn't obedient and then over time he learned how to be obedient as if he wasn't originally. That doesn't make any sense. That seems odd to us, as it should. If that's the case, how does that connect with what the author of Hebrews has already told us in this book? Like Hebrews 4.15, it says, the second half of it says, in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, He, was, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then Hebrews 10.5 and 7 says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the author of Hebrews has already told us he's gone to great pains to make sure that we understand that Jesus has been obedient from the beginning. That Jesus set out on a path of obedience from day one. 
So then, what does it mean in verse 9 when it says, or in verse 8, when it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered? Further, it's not just even in the book of Hebrews. The whole Bible testifies to us that Jesus was perfect. That he was without flaw. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. How can he learn obedience if he never was disobedient? If there was a child that was not disobedient to their parent, and somebody came along and said, Hey, your child is really good. Would the parent say, Yeah, he's learning. No! They would say, Yeah! He's actually never been disobedient at all. So how is it that he's learning obedience if he's never disobedient? So part of our time this morning together is going to be figuring out this reason that Jesus came to learn obedience through what he suffered, as the author tells us. But after we understand that portion of it, then we have to understand why that is essential for you and me. Why that's actually good for you and me. So first, we have to make sure that we understand what's being communicated here about Jesus in the text, and that Jesus is no ordinary son. Point number one, Jesus is no ordinary son. Notice the verse 8 here in Hebrews chapter 5 says, Although He was a son. Although He was a son. But as you, you read that, you, you can't help but wonder, why does he even say, although he was the son? He was, he was different. He was not just a son. He was, he was the son. And if you look back at the beginning of the book, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Jesus is introduced to us at the outset of the book as no ordinary son. It says this in verse 2 of chapter 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. If you just take that passage and you look at what it is saying about Jesus, the claims that the author is making about who Jesus is, this Son that Jesus is, is astounding. He says that He is the heir of all things. Meaning He is the inheritor of all the world and all the people in it. All of it belongs to Him. Not only the world that you and I currently live in, but also the world to come. The universe and everything in it belongs to this Son, Jesus Christ. He says, He is the one through whom the world was created. That means He is eternal. There was never a time when this Son was not. He was with God in the beginning when everything was created. But He was not just with God when everything was created. 
The world was created through Him. Meaning that it was by the Father's will, through the explicit action of the Son. His agency, His action, created the world. Okay? Then it says He is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, it is Jesus that the light, it is through Jesus that the light of God comes to humanity. So in other words, God could remain hidden. He could remain unknown if He so chose. But it's through Christ that God reveals Himself to us, much as the light from the sun reveals the sun's light. Jesus is the bearer of the glory of God. But then it goes even a step further than that to say He is the exact imprint of God's nature. That means that God the Father and God the Son share the exact same essence. So Jesus will say to His disciples in the New Testament, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Now that's an astounding claim. The disciples are saying, well, why don't you show us the Father? He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's telling them, me and the Father share the exact same essence. It's unlike any two things ever in existence, the Father and the Son. They share the same essence. Even if you were to take identical twins who share the exact same DNA, they have different essences. They have different names. They respond differently to different things. But the Father and the Son, he says, share the exact same essence. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And then he goes even further and he says, He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He's talking about the Son here. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. That, that means two things. One, Every molecule in existence is held together by His will. There's lots of things that science has discovered about molecules and about atoms and about various other ways in which the universe works. One thing they fail to recognize is that all of it holds together by the word of the Son's power. So it means that. He holds the universe together by the word of His power. But it also means something else, even a little bit more than that. It means that He is actively bearing the world. He's holding the world together and He's carrying it forward to its destination. In other words, this whole world is going to end up somewhere and by the word of Christ's power, it is going to come about. He is taking it along day by day and it will reach its conclusion in the world to come and in judgment before His throne because He is saying it will be so. That's what He's saying. That is the Son. Now, we could go on and on and on about all that that means. And in a couple of weeks when we start Hebrews, we will. We'll spend a lot of time on these few verses. But suffice it to say for now that Jesus is no ordinary son. I was a proud dad 
the day each of my children were born, but I never said any of those things about my sons or my daughter. Jesus is one of a kind. So here you have this ESV translation in front of you, maybe. Or maybe you have another translation. But in the ESV, as we commonly read, it translates it, although he was a son. But as you can see, even just in reading the book of Hebrews, you, you want to scream out, he wasn't just a son. He was the son. And that's different than just being a son. He was the son. It seems like it should say that. I think the NIV has a better translation, and those of you that have the NIV, I think has the better translation here. It says, Son though he was. Which I think is how it should be translated. Because this preserves what the author has already told us about Jesus. Son of God though he was. In other words... It's the author of Hebrews' way of saying to us, you know already that He was the Son of God. So, what I'm about to tell you is going to sound really weird to you. And that's why I'm putting in this caveat at the very beginning. Son though He was, He learned obedience through what He suffered. What is He telling us? about Jesus then. He's telling us that Jesus came to learn by doing. He came to learn by doing. Hebrews 5.8 again says, Son though He was, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Now, we have to understand this by first saying what it, it's not meaning. What it can't mean. Jesus did not learn obedience by gradually getting rid of his defects. That's how you and I learn obedience. We mess up. We make a mistake. Our parent spanks us. And then we go, well, I don't want to do that again. And maybe we do it again. Or maybe do it a third time or a fourth time. But eventually we kind of go, okay, I, I, gotta, I don't want to get spanked. Or I don't want to get grounded. Or I don't want to get punished. And so, gradually, our defects are, we, we sort of shed those, or we attempt to shed those, and we learn obedience by being punished for our sins. But that's incompatible with who the Son is. We've already seen that's not what He's saying. He's not saying that Jesus is getting rid of defects. Second, we can also say that Jesus did not struggle with obedience and then gradually mastered it. That's also not what He's saying. He's not saying, well, he, 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 was, he was bad at first, and he was a little hellion as he's running around the house. But eventually he learned how to do his chores, and he eventually mastered it, but he was a real pain in the side of Mary and Joseph. Until then, that might be our experience with something that we first struggled to do, but then gradually improve upon. But it's clear that Jesus had nailed the whole obedience thing from the very beginning. So that's also not what he's saying. What this is saying about Jesus is that Jesus' experience of obedience grew as He was tested through suffering. Jesus' experience of obedience grew 
as he was tested through suffering. So what Jesus is learning is the experience of obeying God as a human living in a fallen world where you face temptation to disobey. Before Christ became man, He did not face temptation to disobey God. But when He became man, He faced temptation to disobey. Here's what we have to understand about Jesus. This is very difficult to wrap our minds around. It seems that we would say about Jesus, okay, you had a leg up on us. And so you can't possibly know what I'm going through. Because... You didn't suffer the way that I suffered. That is the opposite of what the book of Hebrews tells us. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, what is it, what is it saying? You, I have to understand that Jesus' experience with temptation was even greater than yours or mine. Well, how could that be? If He was the Son of God, how could His temptation be greater than yours or mine? Well, you and I will be able to withstand temptation to a certain point. But eventually, temptation can get so strong for us that we will succumb to it. We won't be strong enough to overcome the temptation. So in other words, the lust becomes strong enough that you take a look. The anger boils over so much that you eventually give vent to it. The problem pesters you long enough And you have to bring other people into it. The greed pesters you for a while, and you reach out and take what isn't yours. The point is, you face temptation, and as you face it, you withstand it at first, but then gradually, it eventually tempts you so much that you succumb to temptation, and we call that sin. You're lured and enticed by your own desires. And, you give, and it gives birth to sin. The point is, this temporarily, when we give way to this temptation, it temporarily alleviates the temptation for us. We've given in to it, so we're no longer tempted in it because we're squarely in the midst of sin. So you and I have never experienced the fullness of temptation because as temptation increases, we eventually are not strong enough and we give way to it. Jesus, however, faced the fullness of temptation and never gave in. It continued to tempt him and tempt him worse the next time. And he never gave in. The learning of obedience through what he suffered, all the way the, to the point of suffering on the cross, was learning something that he had never experienced before. But it proved that he was the only one that could do it. And he could only do it through experience. He was tested in the desert after 40 days of hunger. And he passed. He was tested by the chief priests. And he withheld his wrath. He was tested on trial in a kangaroo court. But he opened not his mouth. He was tested in the garden with a fate that he knew was coming. But he came to the Father in prayer. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was tested on the cross with the cruelest form of torture ever devised by man, but he never sinned. The testing became gradually more severe, and he learned by experience the fullest depth of human suffering. You understand what the author of Hebrews is making very clear to us is that Jesus experienced suffering and temptation even in a way that we fall short, that we could never possibly know. He came and learned the full depth that a human can possibly suffer. The depth in which a human can be tempted. But then the question is, why? Why is it that he came this way? Haven't we ever asked ourselves at some point in life, like, why did it happen like that? God surely could have killed Jesus at the outset, right when he was born, provided the sacrifice, or maybe when he was a year old. That's what they do, used to do with the lambs, right? Year-old lamb, without spot or blemish. Couldn't he have just done that? Jesus would have still been perfect. Why is it that he had to go through so much life, three and a half years of ministry, facing temptation on all fronts? Why did the Spirit, after his baptism, drive him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? And after 40 days of fasting, then the devil comes along and tempts him. Why did he do that? Well, we get the answer in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, it's just a little bit ahead of the passage that we're in this morning. We get this explanation. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why was it that Jesus came and suffered the way He did, in the manner that He did, tempted as He was? Why did He come that way and suffer like that? It looks like it was for the sake of sympathy. Not just for the sake of our sin, but so that you, human, would know that God does not sit on high, unable to understand what you're going through. He's not one that calls to you and says, be holy as I am holy, and yet from his perch has no idea what the peasants are struggling with. He's not also a God who looks on you in disdain over your struggles. He actually understands the depth of human struggling far greater than even you do. Because He's gone through it. 
Now, what we do have to say is that Jesus is serious about obedience. If you walk away from this message and you sit there and go, okay, well, he relates to me. He sympathizes with my struggle. So Jesus will never look at me and judge me. This is the message that the world wants us to believe about Jesus and the message that the world wants us to believe that judgment will be like. We're going to stand in front of Jesus one day and he's going to say to us, don't worry about it. It's all good. I understand your temptation to struggle and your disobedience and you know what? How could I possibly ever send anyone to hell? That is absolutely not what any of the authors of the Bible actually mean. In fact, Jesus was more serious about obedience than you and I were, and that's the point. That's the reason that He came, was because you and I can never be as serious about obedience as God demands of us. Jesus had to be completely and entirely obedient. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He cares very much about obedience, and He wants you to obey. He was so serious about obedience that He never disobeyed. And as your high priest, He's serious about your obedience as well. He wants it. He commands it. He demands it. But He's not just your high priest. He is also your atoning sacrifice. See, this is the message of the Gospel. Is that Jesus, so serious about obedience, is the one and only one that could come and actually fulfill the demands of God's holiness on earth. Because you and I can't. He lived the life that you and I never could. A life of perfect righteousness. And yet, instead of taking the rewards that were rightly His because of the way that He lived, instead, He went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God that you deserve for you. And what He gives to you or what He offers to you are all of the rewards of His righteous life that can be yours by faith. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ For salvation, it is He alone that can save. But if you walk away from this thinking, okay, great. I get all that Jesus wants, and now I don't have to obey. You've missed the point entirely. Now, not only are you His, but by trusting in Him, you submit to Him as your ruler and authority. You submit to Him as King. Now, what He demands goes. But by giving you of His Spirit, He is now enabling you to obey Him as you trust Him as you go. So what happens to the Christian then, as they trust in Christ and own their disobedience, they now become more serious about obedience than they were before. Where before... They were quite ignorant of their sin. Now they are very cognizant of their sin. Where before, they didn't care about disobedience. Now they very much care about disobedience. So while Jesus is serious 
about your obedience, what you have to understand now in the Gospel is that He also understands the difficulty of obedience far better than you even do. When you've given into temptation, when you've sinned, you can trust that when you cry out to Jesus in confession, you're not finding someone who is rolling his eyes or looking on you with scorn and indignation. This is the temptation that we fall into as we encounter sin and as we say yes to sin. We say yes and then we think about prayer or we think about reading the Bible or we think about going to church even or we think about any of these things and we go, how could God, who, who knows all, He knows what I've done. He knows who I am. The preacher up there is telling me He knows me far better than I know myself. He knows all those things. He's omnipresent and omniscient, so He's everywhere and He knows all things. Well, how could He, knowing everything about me, still accept me? And the answer is, not only does He sympathize with you in your weakness because He's gone through it, and He knows the depth of human suffering, but all of those sins that you've committed were in the future when He died. That means that He knew them all before He went to the cross. And taking account of all of your sin, went to the cross anyway. So He accepted you before you even walked in here this morning. And yes, even in your sin, when you turn to Him in confession and repentance, He's not rolling His eyes. He's rejoicing that you, a sinner, have come to repentance. What you're finding in Christ when you confess your sins is not a rolling eye, it's a sympathetic ear. You're finding a compassionate and merciful Savior. One who is, yes, serious about obedience and who will correct you in disobedience, but who is doing so because of His mercy and grace to you. He is pulling you closer in mercy and grace. You see, when we look this Christmas at the manger scene in front of us, Maybe it's on our mantle, maybe it's in our yard, maybe it's in the yard of our neighbor, glowing brightly. As we look at that manger scene, what it should represent to us is the epitome of God's mercy and His grace. Because it's a reminder that, though this, that through this little baby, coming to learn obedience through what He suffered, we too can come to Him in our time of need. That's what the author tells us. He says in verse 16 of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. When we look at that little baby in the manger who then grows up to suffer on the cross, that's what it represents to us. That's what it means to us. That this Christ came to die to demonstrate God's real grace and His real mercy. God actually knows the situation that you're in. He knows every bit of it. 
Not only does he know, he cares. So then what, what do we do? Draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace and help in your time of need. Why do you struggle through sin on your own, attempting to hide it from those who care about you, attempting to hide it from God himself, when he already knows? And he's providing you help and forgiveness and grace and mercy. So run to him instead. You're not going to find a rolling eye. You're going to find a sympathetic ear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you are to us. We're grateful for what your word tells us that you are. We're grateful for the mercy and the grace that we have in Christ. So Father, we pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes. Perhaps we're lost in sin. Perhaps we're, we've run far away. Perhaps we've hardened our heart toward others, toward your church, toward your people, toward you. I pray that you would break through, that you would call to us, that you would appeal to us through this text, through this season, that we might see Christ came for this reason, that I might find help here. Would you do that for us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.